If you have your Bibles, please turn to Joshua chapter 7 as we continue in our teaching series through the book of Joshua. A series called Victorious, the Gospel in the book of Joshua. Last week, we witnessed how God's people experienced victory over the enemy, the first major city in the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to the Israelites was Jericho, and we saw how God defeated them, how the city was destroyed and burned to the ground, and we saw how everything in the city was devoted to God, it's a language used in Joshua chapter 6, how it was an offering that was given to the Lord, and it was set apart for destruction, and only the precious metals, gold and silver, would be kept in the treasury for the Lord himself. And we saw how the Canaanites were guilty, and how this this notion that they were innocent is just not true, nor biblical. That they were not an innocent people, that God was executing his rights and holy judgment over the Canaanites. And, and we saw how God as a holy judge always maintains his justice. And we even saw how, how Jericho being defeated is pointing to the reality that our Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, has come and his kingdom of light and his kingdom of goodness has defeated the kingdom of darkness, and yes, currently Satan is on the loose, but not for long. Jesus is ruling in the hearts of his people, and one day he'll return in full glory, and he will completely end the kingdom of darkness, and we will enter into his final rest. So that's what awaits us, and as we continue to see God reveal himself through the book of Joshua, we're at the point now in the story where the action is continuing. And now Joshua, the general, the leader of the army of God's people, is looking to the next major city of Ai to conquer. And again, more this foreshadowing of what Christ has done for us. Yet, verse 1 of chapter 7 is is kind of a pause. It gives some information before the action continues in verse 2. So let's read Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regards to devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So you might remember, again, from last week, where God said, keep nothing, destroy it, that this does not belong. It says that it was accursed. And so what we see here in verse 1, it says that the people of Israel broke faith with God. Now, one man, Achan, took some items, it says here in verse 1. But note the text very carefully. It doesn't say that Achan broke faith. It doesn't say that. It says the people of Israel broke faith. And it says the anger of the Lord burned against the people of, of Israel. So you're seeing this is all plural. God is angry. His anger is burning against the entire nation, not only at Achan. Now, you might think, well, that's not fair. Why was God mad at everyone? Achan's the one that took the stuff that wasn't his. Well, Israel was a community. God's people always have been, always will be a community of faith, and all of us together under the authority of God. And so we share the experience 
of God. We share His Spirit, and Jesus is our King, and we're in this together. And so we will either be successful together, or we're going to fail together. But either way, God's people will do so together. There are, as we see later in this text, there are no private sins, as we might think. So, God is holding them collectively accountable. Now, verse 2 through 9 reveals what's happening. Now, understand, we as the readers know what's going on. But the characters in the story had no idea what was happening with verse 1. So, verses 2 through 9. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? AA was not a huge city. After having defeated the mighty Jericho, the thought of going and taking a much smaller, fortified, but nonetheless much smaller town in the, in the Palestine, the Canaan hill country, seemed like a very simple task. And so Joshua, he didn't ask God, there's no indication that he prayed or sought God's leading, but he did send 3,000 men and they attacked Ai. Should have been very simple, easy battle. Not the case. People of Ai overwhelmed the Israelite army, killed 36 of them. Would have been many more, but they ran away. And it says that the hearts of them melted and became as water. Up to this point, that language has been used of the Canaanites whose hearts had melted and were afraid. And now it's God's people who are experiencing fear and defeat and death. And devastation. And Joshua knows it. He knew the significance. He, he, he could have said, oh, it's just 36. Small number. No. Joshua realized that what had happened with this defeat marked the fact that God was no longer fighting for his people. That God had left them. And they were on their own. And Joshua knew that they had no hope of victory on their own. He knew the Canaanites would would get confidence from this defeat. 
and they would all assemble together and come and defeat Israel and destroy their name. And he's concerned. Now, he's kind of whining, I think. He's really doubting God here, I think, just a bit. But he is a human, so let's not be too hard on him because we're just the same. Oh, why, God? We all do it. And this is, this is Joshua. And he's crying out to God. He's in agony. He's saying, they're all going to hear of this and cut off our name, and your glory is at stake, O oh God. Your name is at stake. So, at, I mean, yeah, he's complaining, but he's going to the right place. He's talking to God. He's, he is crying out in agony and brokenness and begging God for wisdom. He's just so broken. Verses 10 through 13 are helpful, very helpful. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? God's like, what's wrong with you? Get up. Verse 11. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from you. You see, Joshua was looking in the wrong place. Joshua was wondering why God had abandoned them. And God says, hey, don't look at me. I'm faithful. I told you back in chapter 1 that if you will obey me, blessings will flow. And here, what we see is disobedience. Now, Joshua didn't know that. Now, the reader knows. But God is now telling Joshua and saying, there is sin in the camp. I'm faithful, but remember, I'm holy. And God says, I will be with you no more. He's like, no more of my presence, no more of my blessings, no more. You cannot stand before your enemies. You will be defeated. You can have no victory in life. Your sin is preventing victory. And so a believer's life, sin, prevents us from experiencing victory. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. We won't read it, but I'll just tell you. It doesn't define how, but there's a process in which God identifies who the culprit is, that it's Achan is found out as, as the one who has stolen from these items that were meant to be an offering to God. And so God does reveal who Achan is, that God's holiness has been violated. And then verse 19 describes a conversation between Joshua, the leader, the father figure, the general, who is now talking to Achan, who's been busted. He got caught for what he did. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done Do not hide it from me. Very powerful language. 
those who are parents can relate to this. My son, there's a fatherly tone here, talking to Achan as a, as a son. He says, what have you done? Stop hiding. Because parents, don't we usually know what our kids are doing? Like, it's so funny. Our kids think they're getting away with it, and it's like, oh my goodness, it's so obvious. I know, I know what they're doing. Maybe when they get older, maybe I won't know, but they're 10 and 7. So I usually know what's going on. God knows what's going on. And he reveals it. And Joshua now is saying, my son, what have you done? But what he says, the language is so powerful. We have to read the text and not just skim past it. He says, confess. And confessing is equated with praising God. And so to to, to confess, he's equating it with praising God. Giving him glory, he said. And so whenever we don't confess our sin, whenever we deny our sin, denying or hiding our sin is a failure to praise God. And so we offer God no glory. We, we distort His glory when we hide our sin and when we don't confess it and be honest about our shortcomings and our failures and our patterns. God is not glorified. And so we're seeing here confession is Praising God. Verses 20 and 21, continuing the conversation with Joshua and Achan. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see that you're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan saw, he desired it, and he took. Then he went and he hid it underneath his tent. And he understands. Achan gets it. He knows what he did. He says, I have sinned against God. You could say, really? He sinned against 36 people that were killed. And many more that were likely wounded. He sinned against the children and no longer have a daddy because they died in battle. He sinned against families. He sinned against these that were killed. So he sinned against quite a few people. And yet, he gets it. I have sinned against God. Because we can sin, and we do, all of us, against other people. But all sin, first and foremost, is directed to God. And you see that in Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin. And he says, to you, to only you, O God, have I sinned. And he said that after he committed adultery and murder, David says, to you alone have I sinned. Achan here understands that all sin is directed against a holy God who is infinite. And so when we sin, we sin against him. Verses 22 through 26, let's finish the chapter and tie all of these these dots together and see how this applies to us today. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. 
And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. They find the stolen items. They lay them before God. Achan and his entire family, his animals, it's all taken to this valley of trouble. That's what this refers to. Achan's sin had brought trouble upon himself and his family, the nation of Israel. And so here you see God executing his justice. His holiness is being upheld. And after the family and the animals and Achan himself are stoned, they burn the remains and they pile a large heap of stones on top of the remains. And Achan has the same fate of the people of Jericho, killed, burned, and buried in rubble, accursed by God. The Bible here is, is shocking, is it not? And yet, this is God's truth. And we read this and we think, man, that just, that just doesn't seem right. Why would God do that? What we're seeing here is God's absolute holiness. The Bible is so simple. It just describes the events without without using graphic language. The Bible never does that. It describes the realities, the truths, as simply but as honestly as possible. But if you stop for a second and think of the sight and the sounds and the horror of a family and their animals being stoned and burned and buried in rubble, And you can imagine that this was not a good day. It was not. But it's important for us to understand the significance of this. That God is absolutely, 100%, eternally, holy, with no sin whatsoever, no darkness, no blemish on him. And he demands covenant loyalty. He demands perfection and holiness from those people that he'd be in a relationship with. And we have sinned against God. And we see here that sin is serious. And we see that this is a true story that actually happened 3,500 years ago. But the Bible doesn't just record events like this to preserve human history. It's not like it says, okay, we want to make sure and just write it as a history lesson. This is not a history lesson. It is real history, but it's not a history lesson. This is revealing who God is. It's revealing his character and his plan to save sinners like you and me. So everything that we're reading here in this almost troubling text in Joshua 7, what we're reading here is pointing to Jesus and what he did on the cross. And we're going to see how all of this works together. This text here shows us the nature of sin, the reality of what sin is, what the results are, and how a holy God deals with sin, and how this matters to you and me very much today, 21st century, Abu Dhabi in the Emirates Park Zoo. And I would ask that 
Every one of you would ask Spirit to help you to really engage because this is not a comfortable topic. This is one of those you're thinking, okay, I should have stayed home today. We're talking about sin. I should have slept in. Now I'm up here hearing that American with his South Texas accent talking about sin. And I'm like, oh, man. And if you're a first-time guest, the reality is we're glad you're here. Because I believe that God has something for all of us to learn. And for many people in this room, I, I, don't, I don't wager, but if I did, need healing and need freedom from patterns of sin that you're enslaved to. And God wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to have habitual patterns of sin. He wants you to have victory over that. And we're going to see through this text as we go back and see how this applies to us, how this is profound. And so let's understand sin. And let's do this together. First, from this text, we see the definition of sin. If you're taking notes, you'll see it on the screens. Understanding sin. Number one, looking at the definition of sin. What is sin? Well, it says it in this text. This sin is breaking the laws of God. That's what sin is. You have it there on your notes. Sin is breaking the laws of God. And you see that in verse 11. He defines sin. He says, Israel has sinned. Okay, but what is sin? Next phrase. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. He defines it. They've sinned. How? Sin is transgressing my covenant, breaking my laws, breaking my word. That's what sin is. It's defined for us very plainly in this text. At its essence, at its root, sin is desire for autonomy. But what does that mean? To rule yourself, to be independent, to have no one tell you what to do. We all want to rule ourselves, all of us. We want independence from God, from all other authority. And so we disobey God's word. We, we break his laws. We disobey who God is, and we are rebellious. Every one of us is rebellious. And so deep down inside... All of us want to be like original father and mother, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. When they reached for Godhood, by reaching for that fruit, they wanted to be like God. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 3. So they reached for more than humanity of enjoying God, of submitting to Him gladly and joyfully. They reached for Godhood to become God themselves to have autonomy, to be rulers of their world with no one to tell them how to think or live or what to do. And so that's what sin is at its root. You know what sin is? Putting yourself in the place of God, quite simply. We put ourselves in the place of God. We want autonomy. And in the process, we rebel against God who loves us and offers us joy in relationship with Him. And verse 11 defines it, breaking His commands, His laws, but then he also gives us pictures so we can see what it looks like in our daily lives. He says they have stolen and lied. And so stealing and lying about it is a picture for sin here. So we steal from God. And so sin is robbing God of what is His, His glory. And so when we are prideful, that's why the, the Bible says in several places, including in James 4, a text we'll look at in our home groups this week cross-referencing from this text in Joshua 7, is we, we sin 
And what happens is God says that he opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Why is that so important? Because when we're proud, we want to be God. We think that we don't need him. We, we think we're better than others, and we think we have more wisdom than God has. And so we would disobey his word to live our own way. And so at its root, I want you to understand, this is important, sin is always self-centered. Always. Every single time you sin, you're being self-centered. Period. Every time. Because when you are other-centered, when you're thinking about someone else and blessing them, you're not being self-centered anymore. When you are God-centered, then you're wanting to please and glorify Him. And so when we become self-centered, that's when we fall into sin. And we rob God of His glory. And so what you see here is Achan, it says he coveted. He was desiring what wasn't his. I've asked this before, but I'm going to ask it again. A couple of questions. If you weren't here, you can jot these down. Ask yourself, really ponder it this week, on do I love God enough to be content? Do I love God enough to be content with who you are, what you look like, your job, your income, everything that your life setting, are you, are you content? And then do I love others enough not to covet? Do I love others enough not to be envious of them? To be really happy for them? To be glad when God gives them blessings maybe you don't have? So what we're seeing here is that Achan, when he saw and he took, he was forgetting something. Remember, only Jericho, the first city, were they not to grab anything from, believe as offering for God. But after that, every other city, they could keep the spoils of war. God had blessings for Achan. God was about to give them blessings the very next day. They went to Ai. And they would have kept the gold, and they would have kept all of the spoils of victory. But he didn't want to wait for tomorrow. He wanted to get now. So God has blessings for us, waiting for us, but we get impatient and we get ahead and we don't want to wait. We don't want delayed gratification. We want instant gratification. It's sin. Wanting more. What happens is we're all depraved inside. And so the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. We want more. We have a sinful nature. Humans are totally depraved. Our desires are selfish and self-centered and evil. All of us. And so what we're seeing here is that we can't fix ourselves. We need a Savior to give us a new heart. That's what we need. And so the definition of sin is breaking God's laws. We also see, number two in this text, the progression of sin. The progression of sin. We'll leave that that slide up for a few more minutes because I want to work through this very carefully, one by one. This text reveals the progression of sin. Sin. You see it in verse 21. It says, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. And so we're seeing this progression right here. It begins with desires. We see here. So desires. He had desires, and then secondly, in this progression, you have temptation. And then after that, you go to self-centered thoughts. 
and then the actual sinful act, and then lastly, covering it up. We all do this. Probably every day. Every one of us does this. And so let's go through this one by one. See this progression as you see here with Achan. One, desires. That's where this, the progression begins. We all have cravings. We all have longings. We all want things. Are they evil? Well, we want things like what? We want comfort. And we want pleasure, security, love, approval, success, joy. We want, right? You want those things or just me? We all want those things. Why? Why do you think we all want those? Because God made you. God made you to want those things. God made you to want joy and success and pleasure, comfort, security. He made you with those desires. They're hard to into your DNA. We all want these things, and they're not evil. Listen, this is so important. He says that he saw the beautiful cloak, the Babylonian cloak. He saw something beautiful, and he desired it. That right there, if you understand this, this is the human quest. Every one of us, we want beauty. We want it. Why do you think there are, I don't know, a bazillion pictures of beautiful, naked women on the Internet? I'm not even kidding. And why do you see naked women in hieroglyphics in ancient Egypt and on cave paintings? From the beginning of humankind, men have desired the beauty of women. Always, this, this is it's hardwired into us. And why do women like to look beautiful? Why? Because God made you to. God made humans to desire beauty. He gave us this intrinsic desire to desire the beautiful. And so all of us are pursuing and we want beauty in our lives. Just like Achan wants something beautiful. You want to be beautiful and you want to have beauty and you desire it. And you know why? Because God has made you to desire beauty because God is beautiful. He's made you to desire beauty. He's made you to desire Him. And so the reason why Achan wanted beauty is because he's made to want God. But the problem is our sin has so corrupted our desires that we begin to worship the created instead of the creator. We worship the gifts instead of the giver of the gifts. And so then what happens is men are designed to look at a woman and say, man, she's beautiful. Praise God that she's beautiful. She reflects, she's an image bearer. And so she, beautiful woman, reflects the beauty of God because she bears His image. And so when you see a beautiful woman, it's designed to spur in you worship of Jesus. But a lot of times we don't. We worship her and her curves. And so we're worshiping the created, and it becomes idolatry. Sin. Desiring beauty for ourselves that's not ours to have. We're supposed to desire Jesus. He's beautiful. You're designed to desire beauty. Just like Achan. It's meant to spur us to worship, to value, enjoy Jesus. The only place your soul is going to find joy, and true beauty, and fulfillment. He wanted beauty. He had these desires, but sadly, they're corrupted by sin. So our desires then become idolatrous. So desire, 
Number two, temptation in this progression. Temptation. He saw it. At this point, was he in sin? Desiring beauty? Not sin. Having in front of him? Still not sin. He was tempted. Satan tempts us. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. So temptation is not sin. But you have to stop the progression right there. If you stop right here at temptation, and you run away, and you turn to Jesus, and you focus on him, and say, I need you, I don't need this, whatever this is, then what happens is you end the progression right there, and you don't actually go into sin. It's not sin to be tempted. You go into sin when you go to the third one. When you have self-centered thoughts. Now you're in sin. Now you've, you've begun to sin, because at this point, it's gone from temptation Now you're thinking about it. Now you're enjoying it. Now you're fantasizing. Now you're thinking about how you're going to act out on this. And so now our thoughts have become self-centered. Remember, sin is always self-centered. But when we're pleasing Jesus, we're other-centered and we're God-centered. Love your neighbor and love God. And so whenever we don't do that, we're loving ourselves. Now we have our self-centered thoughts. And woe is me. And My my husband doesn't love me. She doesn't understand me. And so now we're self-centered and we begin to really enjoy the temptation. We're enjoying the thoughts. And we're, we're dwelling on that and not on Jesus. Now we're coveting, as happened with Achan. Number four, the sinful act. He says, I coveted and I took. Now he is very much in sin. What began in the mind is now being acted out in actuality. Now he took it. He grabbed it and he walked out of that torn down building, went to his tent, and he hid it. Which is the last one. Let's talk for a second about these last two points on the sinful act and on the hiding they're so connected because we all do this. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is, this is, hey, we're keeping it real on a Friday morning, right? Want to follow Jesus? You know what I'm talking about. The angry outburst that makes you feel good because all of a sudden you've asserted yourself and you showed your power over someone else or that you can control the situation or the person or that you won the argument. And so the angry outburst actually brings you a degree of pleasure. It might feel bad later, but in the moment you're enjoying an angry outburst. The extra hours at work that you know you don't need. Be honest, you don't have to stay that late. You don't have to work on the weekend in some situations. Now, sometimes you do, but I'm talking about when you know you don't. And you say extra because you enjoy the approval of work, the success that you get fuels your ego, and so you're, in a sense, you're worshiping this work. It's deeper than the work, though, which is the approval you get from the work. But you're enjoying that. I'm talking about looking at the pornographic images or, or the books, a, a sense of release, of, of the pressure, comfort and pleasure, enjoying it. I'm talking about the shopping trip, you know, where you don't need that extra clothes. You know, you have a closet full. You can't even fit your clothes in. But you go to the mall. Why? Because it feels good. You enjoy it. And you get the endorphin rush. And you get the dopamine, you know, going. And the serotonin. And you're like, oh, it feels good. 
It actually, for a lot of people, it's therapeutic to go shopping. It's not good on the budget or on the credit card debt. Because at its root, it's looking for comfort in the things that won't satisfy. I'm talking about that person at work that when you're around them, you just kind of feel the tingles. You know what I'm talking about? That person at work that you just really enjoy, his or her company. And, and you start talking to that person and you know that you're sharing things that you probably shouldn't share. Things that your wife or husband should be the person hearing these complaints or stressors or whatever, but you really enjoy because they listen to you, and so you're really beginning to have an emotional attachment towards this person at work, and you find reasons to walk past their office or go to the water cooler because that's where her desk is, and you just happen to just be there. Oh, but nothing's happening. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In your mind, it's already begun. I'm talking about that extra brownie. Because for some women, now guys too, but it tends to be more women, but I mean, this is, this is for everyone. The chocolate actually releases endorphins chemically in your brain. It does. And it feels good. And so you eat more because it feels good. There's a real tangible pleasure with food. And we go to that. And then we get depressed because our clothes don't fit. And so then what do you do? You go eat more brownies so you feel good. But it's this horrible cycle. And it's not about the food. It's not about the pictures. It's not that. It's about worship. It's about savoring the absolute beauty of Jesus and having more joy and believing that Jesus is better than the brownie or the pictures or the hours at work or the angry outbursts. They don't satisfy. They leave you hungry and empty and wanting and defeated and addicted. It is horrible. And God did not make us to live that way. He did not. He made us to experience pleasure in Him, enjoying him, may we not be like Achan, that we act sinfully and then we hide it. We cover it up under the earth of our soul. And we hide things. How do we hide? Now, his was physical, but how do we hide things? We minimize our problem. No, 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 I'm in control. No, you're not. Minimizing is hiding. Or denying it altogether is hiding. It's hiding. Blaming others, blaming your wife or your husband, your kids, or life, or the economy, or your genes. Genetics is what I'm talking about. Blame others. That doesn't help, or, or even rationalizing. And it's amazing how humans can have such cognitive dissonance, where we know things that are true and right, and then we can, on the same time, do that which we know is destructive. Because we rationalize. Oh, it's okay. No one knows. It's not hurting anyone. Yes, it is. There's no private sin. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. You're hurting other people. A, you're hurting yourself. You're offending God. Your soul is drifting away from Jesus. You're having God's presence clouded in your life. You're, 
so already it's affecting you, and that's going to affect your relationships, I promise. And if you don't stop and address this, what happens is it only gets worse. It's kind of like seeing elephants in the horizon, all right? Now, I want to go to Africa, and I want to go to a safari. And all of you say, you have to go to Kenya, and I want to. I want to go to a safari, and I want to see the elephants. But imagine that you have property, and you're seeing elephants, and they're on your property. You're like, oh, man, I need to go run those off. They're on my property, and they're destroying my land. But, you know, they're still kind of far away. They're not next to my house. And so you ignore the elephants because they're on the horizon. They're distant elephants. That's what we do with sin. We ignore it. We say, I know I have a problem, but I'll address it tomorrow. It's like distant elephants. I know they're coming, and the day will come. Well, I have to address it, but not today. They're still far away. The sin is still not a problem. It's still at bay. It's far away. Listen, the elephants are not distant. They're in your living room. And they're tearing up the place, and they're stinking it up. You have to get them out today. Get those elephants out of your life. Let's get the house back in order so that it's beautiful and displays the beauty of God. No covering. Next, what this shows, number three, is the result of sin. So it shows us the result of sin he says, I'll be with you no more. Spiritual defeat. The result of sin is broken relationship. First with God and then with others. That's what sin does. It breaks relationship. That's exactly what happens. It breaks it. And so sin breaks with God and with others. That's the result of sin. Number four, the penalty for sin. We see it in this text. Death. The penalty for our sin is death. Achan was right. It is against God. And God demands holiness because he is holy. And there must be a payment for our sin. And we see in this text, it's death. Achan had to die. And yet, we are no better. Our sin condemns us to hell as much as Achan's did his. We deserve it. This is some really bad news, isn't it? You're like, a whole sermon of bad news? No. There's good news. And his name is Jesus. There is good news. The gospel is good news. And so we need to look at the solution. What is the solution for sin? Number five, our solution for sin is freedom through Jesus. That is the solution. Achan had to pay. We're just as guilty. The whole point of the gospel, this good news, is that Jesus has come to reconcile us back to God, to bring us back close to Him so that we can know Him and enjoy Him. And God holds us accountable for our sin. And sin demands death. That's why Jesus came and He died on the cross and took our guilt, our condemnation upon His holy body. Because otherwise, we would all be aching, burned, but for eternity. But Jesus experienced it, yes, for a short period of time. But because Jesus is eternal, he could experience our infinite sin on him and pay for it and defeat it and conquer it. And then he was resurrected powerfully as alive today. And so this is pointed to the gospel. How we have hope because Jesus paid it all 
and He's alive, and He offers us a full pardon, offers us forgiveness, and then offers us His Spirit, where He lives in us, and He he sanctifies us, and He helps us. He gives us a new heart. Jesus doesn't say, you better clean yourself up. Get more religion. He doesn't say that. He says, I died for you. I paid it all. I offer you forgiveness. I offer you my spirit and joy if you will repent and believe. But all your heart, trust me. Stop trying to earn it on your own. Just trust me. Remember what sin is. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. Salvation is Jesus putting himself in your place. On the cross. Offering you the power to overcome these habitual patterns. And if you've never repented, turned away like we read in Ezekiel earlier in the worship gathering. It says, turn away and you will live. That's what we're talking about here. Turn from your sin and you'll have eternal life. But we have to do this together. We have to follow Jesus in community. The first step is believe in Jesus today and then you join us as we follow Jesus together. So what do you do? As we close, just two more minutes, I promise. I know, oh, time is up, Pastor. I know. Last few thoughts, and we'll wrap things up. This is important. Taking notes. Please write these down. If you find yourself in a pattern where you really are struggling, feeling defeated by sin, what do you do? Number one, from this text, we read, get accountability. Also, number one is confess it. Two, get accountability. So one is confess it. Be honest. Be honest with God. Be honest with someone else. Repent of that sin. Turn away from it. Acknowledge it for what it is. It's sin. Be honest. Number one, confess it. Number two, get accountability. You can't do this alone. That's why we have discipleship groups in our church and home groups. Discipleship groups, groups of three or four people that meet for accountability and reading the word and growing, that will then multiply, and they meet with others, and so we have a culture of discipleship, and we have home groups, families, beginning together, loving each other, following Jesus, you can't do it alone, get accountability. Number three, if you're taking notes, focus on Jesus every day, you have to read his word, you have to feast on Jesus, the bread of life, and drink in the living water, Jesus is better, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is truly better? We have to believe this. Which is number four, last. Fight lies with truth. The lies would say, no, Jesus is not better. No, he doesn't have blessings for you. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Jesus is better. He is. And so we fight the lies with truth. And we yield to his spirit in community. So discipleship is gospel-centered and community-shaped. And when we're living like this, we'll be victorious. We'll have victory. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. You have Jesus. And if you don't, you can have him today if you'll cry out to him. We'll be victorious together. Please pray with me. Our Holy Father, you are our joy. You are the reason that we sing. You really are our everything. 
Father, we hate our sin, and we hate it only because your Spirit is in us. We've been awakened to the reality of our sin, and your Spirit helps us to defeat it. We know we can't on our own. We're helpless on our own. Father, help us to hate our sin that much more. Help us to focus on you and enjoy you as we read your word and pray and meditate. I pray that you would give us victory. Give us the courage to be transparent with others. Make us a church that has a passion for your glory. May we tell others this beautiful good news, for you are beautiful. Make us a church that has integrity and holiness. Take away sin in our camp, Father. We need you, and we thank you that we have you. We pray in the name of our love, Jesus. Amen.